Hello, everybody. This is Marshall Poe. I'm the editor of the New Books Network. NBN listeners like to read books and buy them. So we thought we'd tell you that right now, our friends at Princeton University Press are having a remarkable site-wide sale. You can get 50% off books, including ebooks and audiobooks, with the code 50, F-I-F-T-Y, at checkout until May 31. You can save some real money on Princeton University Press books. I encourage you to go there and check it out. Hello, and welcome to New Books in Performing Arts. I'm Andy Boyd. Today we're talking with Caroline Jester, author, along with Caridad's Fitch, of 50 Playwrights on Their Craft. Welcome to the program. Thanks for inviting me on. So this is a book of 50 interviews with 50 playwrights. I'd like to, to ask you kind of how you got the idea to do that kind of a book. It was a while was dramaturg and literary manager at um, a large regional theatre, um, the Birmingham Repertory Theatre. And I was very interested at the time in collaborative um, playwriting, so to, to challenge the single authored play. Um, and the idea for this book came out of working um, with writers on collaborative projects, uh, writers from different countries, writers using different languages Um, and I wanted to think about how we could look at the role of the playwrights um, across generations because what I unearthed or I didn't I didn't unearth what I discovered um, working on a project with playwrights in Germany, Croatia, Poland and the UK was that we don't have the same starting point Um, as a very UK centric um, I believe understanding of what the playwright is and the discussions that we were having in the different European countries uh, really challenged that and I was then fascinated in how we could explore that um, with the UK across the UK intergenerationally do we there's also a very London-centric I believe understanding of playwrights and playwriting and how plays are developed And so the idea came from that, really, wanting to explore it, wanting to challenge it, wanting to just ask the question that we think we all know the answer to. Great. I feel like there's kind of a stereotype that British theatre is very playwright-centred, very text-centred, whereas maybe German theatre is thought of as being really a director's theatre and America is somewhere in between. Uh, did Did that bear out in your interviews? Um, absolutely. Um, it's very. In, it was very interesting having working with Caridad. Um, Caridad Svitch is very prolific and has a huge amount of knowledge on theatre. And I think what we did at the beginning was try to deconstruct that, try to think about a way that we could challenge that by putting playwrights together who we wouldn't normally put together I'm not sure I'm answering your question rather than going in a different area Um, (laughs) yeah but it was it was about trying to trying to trying to challenge that as a starting point um without being overly clever in terms of how we do that um but by being by putting people together who we wouldn't normally put together so if we're seating lots of playwrights around the table Um, to discuss an aspect of theatre, you may not expect to be sitting next to the person you're sitting next to. 
um, because you may be called a theatre maker as opposed to a playwright or you may define yourself as a spoken word artist although that's that phrase is challenged um, in this book by one of the writers um, so we wanted to look at look at the craft of writing the craft of playwriting as the starting point as opposed to the definitions of 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 theatre and making plays and those roles that are defined and um, she've asked that question and you're you're saying that, that that's my understanding also in terms of German theatre being director-led. Um, but we wanted to explore that. We wanted to explore that more fully. Great. I, I also noticed reading the book that there's quite a large stylistic range. I mean, you have everyone from people like Sybil Kempson and Eric N to uh, much more, uh, you know, mainstream playwrights like Neil LeBute. Was that part of the intention as well, to kind of not only have a wide geographical range of the playwrights, but to have a wide stylistic range? Absolutely. I think that was the central premise, really, um, to to explore who defines themselves a playwright, why do they define themselves a playwright, um, but also who's defining, who's making that definition, because there are so many people writing for live performance um, the thing that came out that seemed to come out in a lot of the interviews was playwriting was about and writing for a live performance was to explore explore what it means to be human um, and that goes beyond the definitions of even beyond the stylistic definitions that are put on people or people put on themselves um, so we wanted to have as diverse a diverse form as we possibly could in terms of the writers that we included. And then how did you decide who you would interview versus who Caridad would interview? Uh, well, a lot of it was in terms of who we knew personally, um, <laughs> contacts we could have. So I think it was logistically as well. Um, but we also wanted to, uh, I wanted to interview some US writers and she wanted to interview some UK writers uh, I don't think we had a really a really interesting way to be honest of doing that it was who it was breaking up the chapters who did, it started with who did we feel um, we should um, ask and if they it was you know they agreed to talk to us uh, who would who would be the right people that we could put in a chapter to make it as diverse and interesting, as challenging as we could. And then I think we just split the writers uh, 50-50. And I'd love to talk about the chapters because certainly, you know, one could conceive of a book of 50 interviews with playwrights and, and then just have the, just present the interviews, but you've divided them into five chapters, right? Could you talk a bit That's about right, yeah. uh, the, the process of dividing them into chapters and kind of what your intention was in placing these playwrights at, you know, you mentioned a metaphor of a table. Why, you know, why each playwright uh, is put at one of these five tables? It was really important to, to ensure that there was an intergenerational conversation at each of these five tables, if we use the um, table the tables, um, but also, um, but also, one of our starting points was we wanted to make sure that there was a fifty-fifty gender parity. Um, 
much of the conversations uh, that we hear is there aren't many female playwrights. Well, there are. There are female playwrights. They're all around us. Um, so within each chapter, we wanted to, our starting point was to ensure um, an intergenerational conversation and, and a gender uh, parity um, within. So that was one of the starting points for the 10 different uh, writers within each of the five chapters and most of these writers could transcend um, each chapter. Uh, and it was very hard to try and find a way to structure the book because the interviews were just so interesting. And this, the interviews that you have, the edited interviews, is only a snapshot of the really in-depth conversations that we had with these playwrights. It would be huge, a huge volume if we um, could have gone there. But So we had to find a way into it. And looking at craft was our way into it and the definition um, of craft that we use in this book was thinking about the skills and understanding that the playwrights have in turning their ideas into plays. And so the first chapter was looking at where where do ideas come from? There are lots of um, there are lots of books on how to write a play. There are lots of courses on um, creative writing, um, all with brilliant ideas and how to take it forward. Um, but we wanted to put it back to very different playwrights and different um, styles, as you've already identified, that we've got in the book. And was there a commonality in where the ideas come from? How do they begin to transform these ideas into plays? Um, so that was one of the key questions that we wanted to put in the first chapter. And the second was, how do, they, um, how do you put it all together? So how do these writers structure these? Um, and it was very interesting that writers um, like Chris Thorpe rejected the idea of narrative as a, a key starting point to, to the structure of it. And then um, other writers, it was very much their starting point. So every writer has a different way of putting putting their piece together. And Kate O'Reilly, who I um, interviewed, uh, she rejected the whole question to begin with and she just started singing at me and she talked about it being about dynamic. It was the dynamic that she was writing. She understood intellectually um, the questions that literary managers and dramaturgs put at her, um, but she wasn't interested in answering those questions until she'd understood what was the central question that she really wanted to write about and then she could put the play together. Um, the third chapter was looking at those different labels. So don't put me in a box. Um, why, why can't we have a playwright um, sitting, sitting at the same table with somebody who's uh, developing their storytelling skills in the gaming industry? Um, why do we have to segregate the screenwriter from the musician, from the poet? Uh, they're all storytellers. Storytelling is what this book's about. Storytelling is the way that these writers are choosing to share and explore the human experience. Um, and but often, whether it's critics, whether it's the theatre industry, whether it's dramaturgs, or how do we often look at writers? Oh, they're writing in that performance poetry. Well, then we can't put them in the same category is that um, but we wanted to mix that up because basically they're the storytellers at the heart of it and the fourth chapter uh, was about I can pass through any border so we wanted to look at 
are there certain stories that can uh, transcend borders? Do why do uh, why are some stories told in different countries? And Anne Washburn, uh, it was very. I think she asked the right question by putting the question back to us. Um, it was Caridad who um, interviewed her um, by saying that she just doesn't believe that there's been enough conversation or even discussion to have that question asked. And there are there are very few uh, from a UK perspective, still very few plays um, from writers from outside of the UK, including the US, and. Um, we wanted to explore why that was, and and who who are the who are the gatekeepers essentially? Because it seemed to come down to yes, there are stories uh, that have universal characters that connect with many different people, and in translation can transcend borders. But there are still gatekeepers. It's still a market industry. Well, it's not still; it very much is. Um, and who who's making those decisions about what? can transcend um, borders. And as a Fatima uh, was really interested, for, as a US writer, talked about her experience of bringing her play to the UK um, and how she was challenged in different areas of the UK in terms of changing the title. And her play was pulled in certain areas of the UK because she wouldn't change the title. Uh, so a really, really interesting discussion um, that came out by putting writers such as David Hare next to um, Katori Hall and Simon Stevens um, and Lucy Preble and Anne Washburn, just putting very different writers together and experiences and asking that question. And the final chapter was, what are you responsible for? So should the playwright think about anything other than the actual play that they're writing? Do they have to think about uh, the bigger production um, or, or are there other things that they should be thinking about? One of the writers, the UK writers in that chapter, forgive me if I'm UK centric, but my knowledge is much, um, <laughs> That's <yeah>. okay. <laughs> That's, uh, is much greater from the UK perspective, is uh, Gapreet Kulbati's play, who um, her play Beshti in 2004, uh, I think it was 2004, uh, without double checking, uh, was pulled, um, her production was pulled and lots of issues around censorship as a response to that became quite an international, um, uh, a piece of international interest within theatre. Um, so, and she put, she, she actually then wrote a play as a response to it and put it back to the theatre industry in terms of freedom of expression policies that they should have. So I hope that we've by breaking the chapters into the way we have and by putting the writers in the chapters together we've been able to open up um open up a conversation about playwriting the craft responsibility but by not providing any answers by hopefully opening up questions and opening opening up pathways to explore uh possibilities but also things, questions that need to be asked about the industry as well. That's a very long yeah. answer. No, that's great. Mm -hmm. I, I was so surprised at the story of, uh, should, forgive me, I forget which playwright it was, but of the, the American playwright who asked, who had theatres in Britain ask her to change the title of her play. That's, that seems like something that would be 
you know, unthinkable in the United States. And I'm, I'm certainly, uh, you know, not a, not a jingoist or anything about, about uh, my country, but it does seem like, does that speak to a different relationship to the question of freedom of expression in the UK versus in, in the United States, do you think? Uh, well, that, that's what was such an interesting e- example to explore and to talk to her about. Um, and she didn't have that. She didn't have that issue in the US. It was she had it in the UK, but she didn't have it in London and she didn't have it in Scotland. Um, and, a, and this really, for me, opened up the conversation about theatre um, being not being London centric and who and. It was at a time when the UK, it was 2016, 15, 16, I think it was just before the UK um, voted to leave uh, the European Union. And there's within the UK, there's lots of differences in terms of areas of the country that voted to remain and voted to leave. Um, and she talked about having brought the piece to the UK a few years earlier, and it, I think this was her fourth or fifth tour, of the piece, and it was only in the final, um, it was only the final tour that this actually happened. Uh, so I think it, it, it really did, uh, it, it really does open up the conversation about uh, theatre being outside of key areas, uh, key cities within the UK, and what does that mean um, uh, in terms of and what does that mean? It's really, it's, it's a fascinating. It's a fact. It's a story in itself, um, but it does. I, I, she didn't experience that in the US, to my knowledge. Yeah, I get the sense that it's even uh, it's maybe even a little bit easier to, to find playwrights outside of London in the UK than it is to find playwrights outside of New York in the US. I mean, it would be very difficult to put together a, a sizable number of interviews of of playwrights who are, you know, well-known, but who don't live in one of the five boroughs or maybe in Westchester. Um, Could you talk a little bit about, I mean, what is it about, it's always struck me as so strange that theater is sort of congregates in these capital cities, um, given that it's a live art form that could exist anywhere, right? I mean, it's it's not like, you know, the music industry is in Los Angeles. Sure. Okay. Well, all the recording studios are in Los Angeles and, you know, the, the big record companies. And so you make music there and then it goes everywhere. But theater in New York is only seen by people in New York and by, you know, some tourists. So what do you, why do you think, you know, theater has, seems to have this tendency to, to congregate in these uh, few large cities? Um. Well, it's something I'm very passionate about exploring, um, but I believe of its economic. I mean, it, uh, the there's a. I think Edward Bond talks about it in the introduction, actually, which I think is um, really interesting in terms of the market value. What's theatre and what's um, drama? I hope I haven't got that wrong. Um, uh, yeah, I think so. But it's, it's about yeah. Um, it's a market, isn't it? It's a huge, it's a huge market. It's a huge, um, people make a lot of money out of these theatre shows in these cities. But um, within the UK, uh, there are large uh, subsidised theatres. Obviously, at the moment, we're going through a great period of change and some of these theatres are going into liquidation and on a daily basis, they're being um, only 
uh, yesterday, another large regional theatre um, making 100 uh, staff redundant uh, as a result of COVID-19. So we're at the time of speaking at the moment is a great change um, in the industry um, and how it responds. Um, but but there are US writers in this book also who talked about um, their experiences of going into different areas of um, the US and making plays in different areas and the experience that they had and what that made, what that did for them as an artist. I think this is a big discussion about theatres um, as buildings as opposed to the, the work that artists can make, which they can essentially make anywhere. Um, and I think there are many, uh, many ways of making work, but it won't make the same amount of money potentially um, <laughs> if than the major cities. So why are people doing the work they're doing? Um, who's who's? It, it's a it's a bigger question also, isn't it, about the artist creating their own work as opposed to being commissioned, being produced. Um, it's 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 a market economy, um, but it's I think if nothing else, this period, especially within the UK, and where we are with the theatres and the buildings going through the experience they're going through at the moment, there may be opportunity to explore where work is produced and how it's produced, but that may affect a lot of people's livelihoods um, on one level but it may open up a connection in terms of who has access to some of the work on a different level. I'd love to uh, turn some of the questions that you ask in the book uh, back to you. And the first question you ask all of the playwrights is, what is a playwright? So, Caroline Jester, what is a playwright? That's a very tricky answer, question to answer. Um, it's not my question. Uh, no, I know exactly. And um, after reflecting on it, I think I'm more confused than I was at the beginning of um, working on this book, which I think is a good place to be. Um, I don't think that's a bad place to be. What I don't think it is, is a person who sits and writes a play on their own and hands it to somebody else. I think that's one way of developing a piece of drama. I think a playwright is somebody who's inquisitive about the world around them and wants to explore it and wants to explore it in um, potentially multiple perspectives. Um, so that's why they would want to work in that. I think it's somebody who looks at the craft of what they do. I think playwriting is a craft as well and it can stand alone from um, what a playwright does. So I think it's a living entity in itself and can be a tool for social, creative and personal expression on a number of levels and in a number of different situations, whether it's with a class um, of students who are learning English as an additional language or whether it's on the main stage of a national theatre. So I think the playwright is the person or people um, who 
have a central question that they want to explore um, about the world around them and will create a way of doing that for live performance. Yeah, you mentioned the kind of multiple perspectives of uh, a play. And I, I feel like that's really central to how I think about playwriting. You know, people will say, and I think you've said in this interview that playwriting is storytelling. And, and I always want to kind of push back against that a bit and say, well, no, I mean, a novel is storytelling. It has a narrator, but a, a play is is, uh, is something something different. It doesn't have, it's not one person telling a story. It's It's an event that unfolds over space and time. So uh, I'd love to kind of ask you, do you why, what do you mean when you, when you talk about storytelling? What, is, what does that term storytelling encompass in, in the 21st century? For me personally, it's a way of, again, it's a way of trying to make sense of the world um, by listening to other people's experience. Um, that may be a reaction to an event. You talked about an event. Um, it may be unearthing stories from another period and thinking about what they mean in the present. Um, it may be putting many different people's reaction to one event together and that being the story in itself. So I don't think it necessarily has to be a linear narrative um it's about in the context of plays or theater it's something happening in the present um i think caridad says something really beautiful in the book where she talks about um it having one foot in the past one foot in the future in the present no one foot in the past one foot in the present with an eye on the future um so i think storytelling as well as understanding and learning can have an impact on the future and how we make decisions for the future. Uh, another question you ask is, how do playwriting and the playwright fit into the digital age of storytelling? So I, what, what's, your, what's your thought there? I think it's very uh, interesting now again, um, when we this putting this book together up until two, uh, a couple of years ago, we hadn't experienced lockdown. Um, and so a very, that question is being explored more fully at the mm -hmm. moment, uh, very much so with uh, live streaming of theatre shows. I don't personally think they all work um, in terms of putting shows that should be on the stage um, in on a digital platform. I think it's, interesting but I think what that does for me in certain institutions is raising again that issue of access um, and it's taken lockdown for some of this work to be accessible to a, a large number of people that's not um, so thinking about the form um, I think it's I don't, I don't think I know how to answer that question. I think I may have known how to answer it before lockdown, but I don't think yeah. I know how to answer it at the moment. I think things are, I'm trying things on digital platforms that are making me think of ways that we could explore um, creative digital storytelling. Um, previously, um, I had developed a, an interactive playwriting tool um, that 
could connect uh, people um, across the world. But then technology moves on so quickly that that then became out of date um, and people can do this on so many different platforms. I think it would be useful in terms of the creation of the work. I think that's um, that hasn't been exploited to its um exploited yet um, in terms of how people develop work by connecting with um, artists um, that they haven't connected with before, which they can do instantaneously. I think that would be really interesting. I'm not sure if then to create something that has been a live piece to put it on the platform is the right thing. I don't know at the moment is the answer. I think we're in a real state of change and really questioning the whole role of what theatre is and the market of theatre and accessibility and what that means in terms of, um, I know you challenged the word storytelling, but what that means in terms of telling stories. Yeah, it seems like playwrights, you know, it's about a 50-50 split in the playwrights you interview between people who say, well, digital technology provides all these exciting new platforms to uh, distribute storytelling. It's all storytelling. It's all always been storytelling, whether it's a, a radio play or a, or a film or, a, you know, it's like that monologue from All About Eve, right? It's all theater. It's, it might not be your theater, but it's somebody's. Uh, and then there's the other half who say, no, in, in a world dominated by screens, uh, the immediacy of the live event is more necessary than ever as a as a kind of counterweight. And somebody, I, for, I, I forget who, but somebody said in their answer to the question, they just said, well, it gives the audience a chance to stop looking at their phones for two hours, <laughs> which I thought I was know, sort of great. Yeah, yeah. But then I also, going back to... Um, because I had to, I went back to this book before talking to you again after a while of not um, looking at it. And it, the things, because of where we are in lockdown, because of all the things in terms of who has access, which goes back to the question about um, the major cities, um, the capital cities. Um, I think it was Nyla Ahmed in the UK uh, says she looks forward to the time um, if there will be a time that she could take her son to see a a piece of work uh, for the same price as a, a, a cheap cinema ticket. Mm-hmm. Um, and she doesn't, but she doesn't care where the actual piece of work takes place. It's not the building. It's not the big building that she wants to see um, to, to see the piece or take her son to that. It's about um, that live experience uh, that could happen um, down the road. Um, and Alexander Zeldin, I know I'm going against your, um, digital question and maybe that's because you're unlocking something that I'm starting to think more deeply about um he talks about the architecture of theatres and he's interested in the history of architecture of theatres and how they used to be um designed to um bring all different people together to to do good so whether that would be to try and call for rain for the harvest or something um for the crops to grow um and when you see buildings now, um, the institutions, yes, they're wonderful to experience, to go into, but digital gives us, gives people access to things. Um, and I think we have to ask the question now more than ever because of lockdown about is, is there a way we can think about um, using the digital uh, as well as the buildings or, or what does what does it mean what does it mean uh, to tell stories digitally um in in this time um 
again, what I'm talking about is I'm actually starting to segregate, which goes against everything that I was trying to say. So mm. thank you for asking me the question that's made me think more deeply about it. There certainly is a relationship between the question of access and the question of architecture. I mean, I, there's a theater in my neighborhood in Brooklyn that is in what literally I think used to be a warehouse. Uh, and, and they, you know, to get into the theater, they, they take one of those big corrugated steel, uh, you know, doors and, and hoist it up and you, you enter into this garage space and the tickets are, you know, 15, 20 bucks. But when you go to, to see a play at the public theater, which has this gorgeous building, many spaces, uh, unless you're at one of their special festivals, tickets can be 60, 70, $80. Um, do you feel like in the UK, theaters have, have been more conscious of that relationship uh, between, you know, where you present a, a piece and who actually is going to come see it? Um, I think there's certainly been um, efforts to uh, widen access, absolutely. And there are, um, in the subsidised sector, lots of theatres are subsidised. And um, part of that subsidy is dependent on widening access, whether that's uh, ticket sales um, uh, and encouraging people to come and see shows if if economics is an issue um, that, that is the barrier. Um, I, one thing I noticed also was that a lot of the British players that you, you interview either currently have or have had in the past some institutional role within a particular theater. They're literary directors, artistic directors, even. Um, that is very rare in the United States. I mean, there are there's a kind of growing movement of having a resident playwright for a season, perhaps. Uh, but but the fact that you would have a playwright as an artistic director or even a literary director uh, is, is quite rare. Is that something that's kind of more part of the theater culture in Great Britain than it is in the UK, do you think? Um, I don't think it is, really. I think you've just um, picked up on a few. I don't think this book is representative of that, to be honest. Yeah. yeah, yeah, I think it is, yeah. I know that David Gregg runs a theatre in Scotland, and I know that mm-hmm. some of the writers in this book run their own companies, so it's whether they've, they're non-building-based companies as opposed yeah. to um, building-based companies. Um, yeah, so I don't think... I don't think that's representative from my experience. And I think it certainly should be. Um, I think that would be a great way forward. I'd also like to ask, um, you know, what, what is a dramaturg in your opinion? You're, you're a a writer and a dramaturg. Uh, You're the first dramaturg I've had on the program. Could you define what that role means to you? And is it different in, in these two different theatre markets? Is it different in, in other places that you've perhaps worked? Uh, yes, I think it is. I think the role is very different. Um, it was it, it was really quite unheard of in the UK before the sort of late 90s, early 2000s and this sort of explosion mm. of new work that came out as a response to a public subsidy, really. It was the government at the time was investing money in the um, arts and one of that that was to develop new work, which was to also um, look at how to develop audiences as well. Um, and there were, I think, 
then literary managers, a few literary managers appeared um, and the word dramaturg started to um, appear. Um, but it was still, it's, I think, in the US, the word dramaturg in, with connection to the um, academia is, is, well, is and was uh, much more widely um, used from my understanding, correct me if I'm wrong, um, so. than, than it was here. Um, and I think it's still, uh, I think it can mean many different things to many different situations. For me personally, when I was working in a, a large uh, regional theatre with a literary department, uh, it was to be part of a programming team. It was to set up programmes of work for um, many for different writers, for new writers, or to look at more established writers and develop programmes for developing work for large-scale spaces. Uh, it was also developing programmes in schools, uh, uh, but and it was also working with individual writers into production, taking that script into production um, with the writer, and uh, asking questions along the way, whether that would be structural questions, whether that being a sounding board. Um, but I've also worked with smaller companies who are setting up their programmes of new work for the first time. Um, and that can sometimes be more about running workshops. Um, it, it all depends on the individual. It depends on the individual writer. I think it's when you're working on an individual basis with a writer, it's about um, a trust. It's a, a relationship of trust. But it's also about... Um, for me, it's about asking questions. Uh, the writer knows the answers. The writer knows all the answers, the right answers to their piece of work. Um, but the more I've worked with writers, the more I'm coming to think that I think the best dramaturgs are actors. I think mm. the best when you get their work put in front of the actors. So whether I'm making myself redundant, um, but I think... Uh, I think there's no better dramaturg for a writer than being in a position to have their work read and hearing hearing that. Yeah, somebody... And it's very some, different in Germany. Yeah. Sorry. No, I would love to hear more, uh, more about Germany. I'm fascinated by their theatre culture there. It seems so bizarre. So what's the role of the dramaturg in Germany? Uh, well, I can only go from my experience of working mm -hmm. um, on a piece, uh, as a multilingual piece called Europa, um, and one of the partners was uh, a Dresden State Theatre. And it was fascinating. It was, it was a similar size theatre to the uh, Birmingham Rep that I was working at at the time in the UK. Um, but they had a whole corridor full of dramaturgs. They had, um, they had I think they were probably exaggerating, but about 10 doors, and they all had the word dramaturg on the front of the doors. Um, and the role... Um, was very much a key part of the organisation, key part of the culture, the theatre culture. I think, as I said, in the UK, it's only something that came, started to become within a theatre, um, in regional theatres sort of in the late 90s, 2000. But it's, it's a long, the dramatic has a long history within, um, from the 18th century German theatre. So it's, it's a real, really important, it felt like there was a real status to uh, dramaturgy yes. within within the theatre uh, as well as the whole um, culture and industry um, and there were but they would they would research productions they would um, 
write papers on productions um and uh, yeah it just seemed so um i don't but i still don't actually know what they do what they do that was different to be perfectly honest but that was just my one experience in that theater and i was just blown away by the amount of dramaturgs that they had mm-hmm. in there um so it was fascinating it's fascinating I heard a talk once by a dramaturg. I'm forgetting the, her name right now, but uh, she, she was a dramaturg who worked a lot with Sam Shepard. And uh, at one point, Sam asked her what a dramaturg was. And she gave this kind of long explanation, you know, started with the Hamburg dramaturgy and talking about how, you know, they're kind of the one who, who's trying to make sure that every part of the production works together and, uh, and they're kind of a surrogate audience and, and so and so and then yes, th- yeah. Sam paused and said, oh, I see. You're an enthusiast. <laughs> yeah. Uh, um, I have sort of one final question, uh, which is a, a, a more big picture question, which is uh, we're obviously in a very dark time for the theater right now. Uh I, I certainly share your judgment that a lot of this, the digital theater that people are, are attempting feels like that, feels like an attempt uh, rather than like a fully realized uh, uh, presentation. Um, and nobody knows how long it'll be until theaters can safely reopen. I mean, some people are talking about January, but that's entirely a guess. Uh, so what gives you hope when you think about uh, the present state of theater? I hope that whilst there's the obvious and immediate economic um, crisis that's going on um, within theatre and the theatre industry, I hope that out of this, other questions emerge about its role um, and a new role, because I think we'll be, we will be entering into a period of recovery at some point, hopefully very soon, um, on, on many, many different levels. And I think theatre, um, communal events and coming together and sharing, exploring um, the new, the, the new um, will be hugely, hugely important. I only hope that it doesn't become a conversation about saving saving a building, which I know is hugely important and emotive and lots of people's, you know, depend on that for a livelihood. I hope it becomes about what the what the value of coming together and sharing work can be. And I think from the playwrights in this book um, and the many creative artists that there are. Um, will find a way of leading that discussion and not being led. In the U.S. right now, there's been a real moment of reckoning for many theaters where I think because of both the closure of all the theaters because of coronavirus, but also because of this renewed wave of Black Lives Matter activism, there's been a real conversation about equity within theater and what it means to reopen and and what we're what what is worth saving about the theater that existed before coronavirus and what 
needs to change. Has there been a, a similar kind of reckoning in, in the UK or do most people sort of feel like uh, theater has, has had been sort of frozen in place and they need to kind of thaw it out or something? No, I absolutely, um, I think it's the same. I actually, I'm just um, looking, there was an email that came through uh, yesterday that the Royal Court seems to be the first theatre um, that it says here is a sharing um, Royal Court anti-racist reflection and action. So they've um, sent an email out to obviously all their patrons. It's not, I'm not on a special email list here. Um, and it says their document is directly in response to Black Lives Matter. And it goes through reflection um, on where they are now, action they will take, um, and then the uh, an action they would take in terms of changing um, the structure within their organisation, but also the work um, and the dramaturges that they um that they develop or it says we will critique our dramaturgy. Do we only respond to stories we recognise or that affirm our bias? So this is the first um, statement I've seen come out of uh, a major theatre, um, a new writing theatre. So, and I'm sure this will be the, the first of many. I know that um, uh, Manchester Royal Exchange did a reading of uh, Katori Hall's play, um, The Mountain Top. Um, mm-hmm. Uh, as a reading, as as a response to raise money as well and promote. So I think there is absolutely um, a, it's a response. Um, yeah, uh, it's yeah. Well, that's that's great to hear. Certainly, it's a reckoning that has been long overdue in the theater. Uh, absolutely. As a, as, yeah. yeah. So it's it's you know I guess better late than never. <laughs> yeah, absolutely. I th- I think this is a moment, certainly a moment of reflection and hopefully action as they um as they as the World Cup puts in their statement. Well, Caroline Jester, thanks so much for being on New Books in Performing Arts. The book once again is Fifty Playwrights on Their Craft, uh, by Caroline Jester and Caridad Fitch, and it's out from Bloomsbury. Thank you very much for um, your interest in the book.